0: Oftentimes, in a moment of reflection or um, perspective, many of us will ask the question, the big question, why in the world did God put man on earth in the first place? And for you and I that are born again, that's a question that we have an answer to. We can answer that question in a lot of different ways. But for someone who doesn't know Christ and that hasn't yet come to that experience, that is a very searching question. It causes people to stay up late uh, at night, unable to fall asleep because uh, they're looking for a landing place for that issue. Why in the world are we here? What, is, what in the world is going on here? And there, are, there really are a lot of answers to that question. Um, but the primary uh, answer to it, first for everyone before anyone else, is that that we might ultimately, every man, woman, and child that is born, that they might ultimately find out who God is, that they might come to that place where they realize that there is a true and living God, a creator uh, and a sustainer of all things. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, uh, and as he took the sum total of his experiences and his possessions and everything that he had done within his life and he was reflecting on it and and then he took to pen um, his thoughts and he put those things down for us he said these words it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and it's in verse 10 he says this he says I have seen the travail or the labor which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it so just looking at the whole spectrum of Everything that a man or a woman does within their life. Solomon says, I've examined it. I've thought, thought it through and I've seen it. And then he says this. He says, he has made, speaking of God, everything beautiful in his time. And also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. You say, well, what in the world is he talking about? What he's saying there is that God has put it in the heart of every person to search and find the answers for life. That at the end of it all, that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. And, and, and so we look around the world at, at what people do and we consider it in our own lives. And what we realize as we consider those things is that this world sets us on a pursuit of acquiring or attaining or reaching, but never yet being able to grasp satisfaction or find an answer in all of that grasping and searching and reaching. And so that's a real thing that we experience. We set goals for ourselves. We go through life. We try to meet them. Uh, Eventually we do in in many cases. But as soon as we do, we find that right in front of us is not uh, some pot of gold that was the answer to all of life. we're immediately confronted with the next goal, the next conquest, the next thing that we're looking after. And God has set that so within the hearts of humans so that ultimately we would find our landing place in him. That at the sum total of just a few experiences, hopefully, we realize that there's nothing in this world that can truly satisfy, nothing that can truly fill us, nothing that truly lasts. And then that will lead us to the end of that conquest, which is the place where we find God. We find that there is something that is eternal. And so God's uh, reason for putting man in this world as he has is that in searching, we might come to the end of our search in him, that we might find God. Then the reason for us being here changes because I don't know if you notice this, but the, the moment that we get saved, we don't immediately go to heaven. We're still here, right? And so that means that the purpose for our lives then changes. It goes from being a pursuit of God to now getting to know God. We grow in Him and we begin to learn His person and His ways. We learn His freedom as He works within our lives and sets us free from what was and brings us up now in what's new. And so there's a growth that takes place as we come deeper into a relationship with Him. That's part of His purpose in leaving us here, that by faith, We might have a relationship with the true and the living yet invisible God, but it doesn't stop there. That's not the only reason why God has left us behind or left us here. Not only is it that we might know him and grow in that knowledge, but it's also because he has a place of service for us in his work or in his purposes or in this life that we have. We want to serve his purposes in our time that's here. And so The reason why man is on the earth is to find God and then it's to know God and then in knowing God to also be serving God with our lives and through the the expressions that he's given us to serve him with. Now, in the New Testament church, which is what we are part of and it's also what we're studying in 1 Corinthians, the church is the entity or the body through which God works within the world today. It's the platform or the stage or the framework, if you would, wherein God uses or uh, uh, expresses himself to the world. And so it's where each of us is placed into at the moment that we're saved. We become a part of this great big entity that's called a church. Now, the church is not the local church body, like Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley or one of the various churches that exist uh, around here or anywhere else. The church is anyone who's been born again, blood-bought, and that belongs to Jesus Christ uh, through the covenant of grace. And if that's you, then you're a part of the church. And the church is the body through which God manifests and works within the world. Now, in Matthew chapter 28... Jesus gave to us the mission statement for the church. We're talking about service, right? Our serving God. If you go to a job, the very first thing that you do in an orientation is you're handed a piece of paper that explains or gives to you the mission statement of that organization or of that company. You want to know what it is that that company stands for and what their mission or purpose is and why they exist. And Jesus did that with the church. He gave to us a mission statement. And that's given, it's Matthew chapter 28, and it's the last words that Jesus said. It's in verse 18. It says that Jesus came and he spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So right off the bat, the very first aspect of that is that he is the authoritative head over the church and over all things. Ephesians says he's far above all principalities and power. So he's the head of the church. What's the commission or the mission? Verse 19, he says, go ye therefore. So there's a sending, there's a commissioning, there's a task, a duty, something that we're to do. And he says, and teach all nations or make disciples of all nations, you might have in your um, translation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then part two, teaching them to observe all all things whatsoever i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even to the end of the world and so what we have there we call it the great commission but really what it is is the mission statement for the church it's what jesus would give to you and i if we were to sit with him personally and say god what is it that you've made me to do and what is my place of service in the world he would start here with you he would hand you this and he would say this is the mission statement Number one is that I'm the Lord and the head and I have all authority in heaven and earth. And here's my mission. I want you to go out and I want you to make followers of me. And that consists of two different things. Number one is evangelism. That's baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Winning them to a conviction or a place where they'll give themselves to me in faith. That's evangelism. And then number two is education, teaching them then to observe. And so it's two halves. There's winning them and then there's equipping them. There's winning the lost and then there's teaching the saved. And both of those elements are part of the mission of the church. And then the third element, which is the most important element, because if you take it away, you lose the whole thing, is the last part when Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the backdrop or the thing that holds all the rest of it together is the relationship that we maintain with him, the close relationship that we have with him on a day-by-day basis that we don't let go of. And if we lose that, then we lose all power to do anything else that, that he's asked us to do. And so his power, which is where it begins, is, is um, attained in relationship, which is that he's with us, and that is to win the lost than to teach the saved now inside that there's a whole world of different ways in which that is done and how that applies to every individual christian is different depending on how god has made us what god has given us and what his specific plan and place for us is within the framework of all of that and that is as individual as you and i are as people And so when we come now to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to deal with some of the nitty gritty of that. That is our place in his kingdom or his body, the church, and how we fit into that uh, as Christians in the modern era. And so he begins in chapter 12, new subject in in the epistle here. And he says this in verse one, he says, now, concerning spiritual gifts and you'll notice that the word gifts is in italics which means that that word is not actually in the original language it was added by the translators for clarity which usually brings confusion he says concerning spiritual gifts more literally it would be concerning spirituals or spiritual things spiritual matters up to this point the apostle paul has been talking essentially about practicals. He's been talking about sin issues in the church, whether or not they should eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, how they should behave at the communion table, all outward things that have to do with traditions and behaviors. Now he's gonna begin to deal with spiritual things or invisible things, things in the spirit that are less tangible, they're less described. You can't point to it and say, this is what that is. Jesus, when he was speaking with Nicodemus, he said this. He said that, uh, that everyone that is born of the Spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it blows, and you can't see it, but you can see what it does. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can see the effects of it. And so, too, there's a whole side of the spiritual life that we have that's invisible. You can't see it. You can't point to it. Well, you can't draw a picture of it but it exists. It's as real as the body that you and I have or the chair that we're sitting on. And so that's what Paul is gonna begin to talk to them about now, the spiritual substance of the Christian faith. And he says I, he says concerning this, he says, I would not have you ignorant. Now we could move right over that phrase and kind of mark it in our minds as being trans- transition from, uh, you know, topic to substance and all the rest but it's actually quite an important statement that paul makes he uses it four times in the new testament there's four times essentially paul says be careful that you are not ignorant in this area and if the bible tells us that there's an area where we're not to be ignorant then we should do well to give heed to not be ignorant in those areas right the two of those concern the place of israel in god's plan in the new testament In Romans chapter 11, Paul Paul says that about Israel. He says, don't be ignorant concerning, uh, you know, the fact of God still going to use Israel. He says it again in 1 Corinthians. We read it a few chapters ago when Paul says, I don't, it's chapter 10 actually. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant about how all our fathers passed under the cloud and through the sea. And he said, this applies to your life. So don't lose sight of that. Don't be ignorant about the importance of Israel in the context of the New Testament. The second time Paul uses that is here, and then the only other time that Paul uses that phrase, don't be ignorant, is in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he's talking about the end times and specifically the rapture. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, and then he gives teaching concerning the rapture. So the place of Israel, the rapture of the church, and concerning spiritual manifestations or holy spirit influences within the world those are the three areas where paul says do not be ignorant about this now the amazing thing is that if you were to pull the church today and you were to find out what people knew and what was important to them you would find that there are three great areas of ignorance within the church today number one is concerning the place of israel in the new testament context number two is concerning the end times events and the rapture of the church And number three is concerning spiritual gifts and spiritual manifestations. And so amazingly, the very things that we are ignorant of by and large are the things that we're told in scripture not to be ignorant of. Now notice what he goes on to say. He says, you know, in verse two, that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Now, uh, when you look at it in the Greek, and I'm not gonna beat you up with greek language but let me just give to you the rendering uh, of this uh, in a in a more clear way what this verse really would say to us is he would say that when you were gentiles and in that state you were given unto following idols and unto these you were led and then carried away and so what he's basically saying here is that listen don't forget that when you were gentiles before you knew christ You were given to idolatry, which was common. Nobody was an atheist in those days. Everyone ascribed faith or allegiance to some God or some deity, some ideal, something higher than they were. That was common. And what he's saying is that when you were in that state, you gave your allegiance to those idols and thus you were led about by a lying spirit that was the influence behind those demons. And the result of that is that you were lost or carried away. You were deceived. You weren't led into truth. You didn't know the reasons or the answers for the reasons why you exist and what's important in life. That was your former life when you were in Christ. You were led of evil lying spirits, invisible things. Wherefore, he says in verse three, this is why I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Ghost. And so basically what he gives to us here is two precursors to the spiritual substance that he's about to give to us. Number one, he tells us that it is possible for us to be carried about by winds of demons before we're saved we can be deceived and brought down a long path so how do we recognize the difference between the holy spirit and a lying spirit well number one he says to us that the holy spirit will never diminish jesus nor upstage him that that no one that's speaking by the spirit of god will ever call jesus accursed Jesus told us in John's gospel that when the Holy Spirit comes, that his primary ministry will be to elevate Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will always point to the Son of God. So anytime there's a spirit or an influence that's diminishing diminishing Jesus or upstaging Jesus and making him the less than the focal point, even if it claims to be the Holy Spirit, If the Holy Spirit takes center stage in a meeting, then there's something wrong with that because the Holy Spirit will always point to and exalt Jesus Christ, not himself. I always get leery when I hear about things like a Holy Spirit conference or a Holy Spirit meeting or or something of that nature because the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. He will always subtly and beautifully point to Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus isn't being elevated or glorified, then we should take heed. Is this of him? Is this of God? Or am I being led about by something else? The other thing that Paul says there on the other side of that coin is that if the situation is elevating Jesus Christ as the Lord, then it may be the Holy Spirit. So don't just throw it out and say, well, this is some counterfeit uh, demonic experience. He says, no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the holy ghost and so here's the other side of the coin is that if you're in a meeting or a setting or a prayer group or a church or church service and in that you're seeing things and you're saying whoa this is supernatural or this is out of the ordinary not what i'm used to but jesus is being elevated and put center stage and glorified then don't be so quick to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that this absolutely is not of God. It might be. We serve an invisible God and we have an invisible power and we deal with invisible entities. And therefore, the manifestation of those invisible entities is gonna look like something. And we shouldn't be so quick just because something seems supernatural or that seems out of the ordinary to us to throw it away if it venerates Jesus. So what are the guidelines? How do we recognize it? Paul gives teaching following now. Notice in verse four, he says, now there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit withal now concerning the work of the holy spirit in the church or the way that god by his holy spirit uses us to bring jesus to others via the great commission the mission statement what we're called to do paul gives to us the instruction now i want you to notice that in the verses i just read between verses four and seven there are four nouns that he uses within those sentences He says in verse four, diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. In verse five, he says differences of administrations, but the same Lord. In verse six, diversities of operations, but the same God. And then in verse seven, but the manifestation of, of the spirit is given to every man to profit withal. So we're dealing with four different things here and you do well to mark that in some way within your Bible for clarity of what Paul is trying to say. There are gifts, there are administrations, there are operations and there are manifestations. Now he talks first of all concerning gifts. The Holy Spirit when he comes into the life of a believer What he does is he gives gifts to that person that are a supernatural and sanctified means of God using you to reach into other people's lives. Now, those gifts are actually listed for us in terms of what they are in Romans chapter 12. As Paul begins talking in Romans 12 about the service that a believer renders for the Lord, he lists seven gifts that God gives to his people. And every one of us is going to excel in one of those seven areas, but all of us are a makeup of a combination of those gifts, excelling in one, but having strengths and weaknesses in other areas. Those gifts are listed, and I'm not gonna elaborate too much because it will take up our whole night. But those seven gifts that are listed there in Romans chapter 12 are prophecy, and that is Speaking by the spirit of God or speaking forth spiritual things for the Lord. Ministry, number two, which is plain service. To to, to minister means to serve, that God's given you a servant's capacity and a servant's heart and a servant's gifting. Number three is teaching. That's what I'm doing right now, taking the word of God, picking it apart, explaining it and applying it to a life. Number four is exhortation, which is King James for an encourager someone who builds up uh, believers and encourages them in their faith and strengthens them kind of breathes life into the fire so to speak the fifth is giving someone that has a gift of generosity that would just literally lay down their life for the benefit of someone else and give all that they have uh, to further God's work number six is the gift of administrations or governments people that know how to organize and facilitate and, uh, and just keep things in the proper order as they're supposed to, priceless things in the body of Christ so necessary. And then finally, last but absolutely not the least, is the gift of mercy. Those that just can take a sinner or take someone who's broken and take someone that's even destroyed their own life through their own foolishness and they can love that person with an unconditional and supernatural love and just love them right back into strength, spiritual strength. It's a gift of mercy. And, and each one of those uh, gifts is real. Each one of them are, are manifested within our lives in a thousand uh, different ways. Now, what I've found is that oftentimes when we look at that list of gifts, those things that Paul says, these are. The What I know about myself is that I was always kind of inclined to that But when I got saved the holy spirit empowered it and sanctified it and he took it for himself And he came upon it and so that gift was there But it didn't make sense until it was completed by christ And often I find that that's the way it works with all of us people say well, what's my gift? What do you do? Who are you? How do you think how does god use you? you can determine what your gift is. And as I have read that list and I'm saying these things, probably for many of you, the light just goes on. You say, oh, I know right where I fit in that. I'm an administrator. I, that's it. I think in terms of organizing and setting things in the right place. And, and when I see the inefficiencies of things, it drives me crazy. Or however you work and you're wired and how you tick, that's your gift. And God gives everyone a gift and a combination of gifts. And that's how he uses us in our place within this great commission and so Paul talks about the gifts he says there are differences of gifts but it's the same spirit then he says in verse 5 that there are differences of secondly administrations now tucked inside that word administrations you'll see the word ministry in there and you could even read it that way you could say that there are differences of ministries And there are absolutely differences of ministries. When you think about the body of Christ and the church and how God uses the church and moves to the church, it is vast. There are pulpit ministries, radio ministries, humanitarian ministries, media ministries, outreach and missions ministries, children's ministries. It's endless. People that write books, people that do drama and and use the arts. I mean, there are thousands of different ministries that god uses to reach the lost within the world and regardless of the ministry those gifts that are listed are going to be present in the people serving in those ministries no matter what it is there's going to be teachers and prophets and encouragers and administrators and givers and mercy all of those things are needed in those ministries no matter what kind of ministry it is Then he goes on and he says in verse 5, not only different, or different verse 6 rather, not only differences of ministries, but he says that there are diversities of operations, the third noun of it here. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? What it means is this, is that the way in which a gift is used or operates is different from person to person and in ministry to ministry. In other words, there might be 10 people that all have the gift of teaching, like what I'm doing right now, but all 10 of those people will operate in a different way. There's some people that are very systematic and structured in the way that they teach. There are some people that are very humorous and they have a gift of drawing you in with humor and and then using humor as the platform to open your heart and then boom, they insert truth and it's impacting and you remember it and it gets in there and it's powerful and you say, wow, that's amazing. And there's people that communicate in so many different ways. Some are so poetic with their language and it's just the, the meter at which they speak. It just causes the ears to soften and the heart to open and people listen. And so there's differences of operations. People give differently. People show mercy in different ways. People prophesy in different ways. Some are plain and to the point and others are sensational and you know like to use visions and illustrations and all the rest. And so there's a vast operation of how the gifts work and 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 also within various ministries someone who teaches on the radio is going to teach different than someone who does it through drama and so on and so forth and what paul is saying is that the body of christ is so vast in the way that god uses his people to reach other people and to fulfill his purposes within the world and so you have gifts You have ministries and you have operations of those gifts within those ministries. But then Paul says, and it's the topic of the chapter in verse seven, he says, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So he changes here and he brings in a whole new noun for the fourth one. And he says, the manifestation of the spirit. What in the world is that? Well, the word manifestation simply means to reveal or to make known. And so something that wasn't seen is now seen. Something that wasn't, uh, um, you know, you weren't aware of it, now you're absolutely aware of it. And what it is that you're being made aware of is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so within every gift, in every ministry, and through every operation, there should be an element of the Holy Spirit manifested through that gift and operation and ministry in a way wherein God is connecting through that ministry to reach those that are being ministered to. And so the Holy Spirit is essential in coming through these ministries and through the gifts that we have in the whole thing. And that is what Paul now begins to talk about in the following verses, the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, I want you to understand that there's a difference between the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are listed in Romans chapter 12. The manifestations of the Spirit are listed here. And here's the difference, is that not every one of us has all of the gifts that are listed in Romans chapter 12. I'm a teacher and you can hang me From the highest limb of the highest tree, and you can try to make me an administrator. And let me tell you what you're going to have when I hit the ground after you drop me. If I live, you're going to have a teacher because that's what I am. And I will never be an administrator. And you say, don't speak. You're speaking. (laughs) If God wants to make me an administrator, I'm open. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. Other things, I'm not strong in the mercy category, but my wife is phenomenal, off the charts. We balance each other out in that. You know, I'm never gonna be some of those things. And your gift kinda is your gift. It's what God's given you, it's who you are. But listen, the manifestations that we're about to read, those things can be experienced by every Christian in every ministry, gifted in every way, no matter what. Every one of us can experience the things that are listed here regardless of who you are. Why? Because they're not yours. It's the manifestation of the spirit. And if the spirit wants to work through my life in these manifestations, then he can do it whether I'm a teacher or whether I show mercy or whether I give, he's gonna do it because he's gonna do it. And so the manifestation is given to every man, he says, to profit with all. And so every one of us that's here in this room tonight, no matter what your gift or strength or ministry is or how it's used, every one of us can experience these things and should experience these things uh, in our ministry. So what are they? He says in verse eight, he says, for to one is given, and notice that it's given, it's not earned. You can't pray hard enough for it. You can't earn it. You can't show God that you're worthy and thus uh, solicit his willingness to impart it in some way. No, it's given. He says, for to one is given by the spirit the word of wisdom. The first thing that he lists there, uh, this manifestation of the spirit, it's called the word of wisdom. Now, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And the word of wisdom is an impartation of knowledge to you that dictates what you should do in a given situation. Or it gives you insight into how to navigate through uh, a situation. Um, in the whole thing and so uh, we think the the, the wisest man that ever lived and we go into the story of Solomon for an illustration of what this looks like and and hopefully you know the story because I don't have time to, to develop the whole thing of the two women that came to him And and both of them had babies and one of them uh, rolled over on her baby in the night and and smothered it and and then took her dead baby and exchanged it with the other mother and put the dead baby with her and took the living to herself. And their case was brought to Solomon and both of them claimed to be the real mother and they they counted on him to figure out which one really was. And so Solomon said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half and give half to you and half to you. And we're going to call it a day because that's fair. We'll split it right down the middle. And the one woman said, do it. Good idea. Cut the baby in half. And the other one said, no, spare the baby. Give it to her. She can be the mother. And Solomon said, you're the mother. Give the living child to her. And then, you know, the case was dismissed and everybody glorified Solomon's wisdom. What was that? That was a word of wisdom. It was a word of knowing that a real mother would never allow her child to be killed. He knew that. He knew that 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 was the instinct of a mother, that she wouldn't let that happen. And so he was then able to say something that would bring out who the real mother was. And through wisdom, he was able to discern what was going on in that situation and make a good uh, decision and sentence concerning it. It's a word of wisdom. Um, We see it with Jesus when he was being tested later on in his ministry. And and, and they, they said to him, should we pay taxes? And Jesus looked and he said, bring me a coin. And they thought they had him because if he said yes, he's damned. If he says no, he's damned. They got him either way. But they brought him the coin and he says, whose picture is it? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And thus he answered the question rightly without compromising morals or faith, but he silenced their criticism and, and put down what they were trying to do, but he did it through wisdom. It was wisdom. And it's a word of wisdom. And God will give wisdom to his servants to us when we need it in our ministry so that we're able to so people can look and say wow god was in that he showed up in a supernatural way the second thing that he lists there in the second half of verse eight he says unto another is given the word of knowledge by the same spirit the word of knowledge is similar to the word of wisdom but it's a little bit different in this is that wisdom demands action knowledge is just information It's the imparting of information to us. So the word of knowledge is knowing something that there's no possible way that you could know other than the fact that God gave you that knowledge. It came from nowhere else other than God. It's supernatural. I think of Elisha, the prophet, when he was uh, walking at one point in his ministry and he was met by a messenger from the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad. And the messenger's name was Hazael. And Hazael came to Elijah to find out if Ben-Hadad would recover from his sickness. And as Elijah looked at at, at Hazael, it says that he stared at him. And as he stared at him, his countenance changed. He stared and he went from a a normal look to a a grieved look upon his face. And Hazael said, what in the world is that all about? And Elisha looked at him and he said, God has shown me what you're gonna do to the children of Israel. You're gonna torture them. And Hazael denied it and said, I would never do that. And Elisha said, you will. You're going to rule in the place of Ben-Hadad and you are going to be a cruel instrument over the Israelites. And Hazael said, I would never do it. And he walked away that day. He went home. He walked into his master's house, grabbed a pillow, suffocated him and took the crown to himself and fulfilled the word exactly. What that was, was a word of knowledge. There was no way that Elisha could know that other than the fact that God supernaturally gave that to him. Jesus was with a woman at the well. And he said, go and call your husband here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you have spoken rightly. You have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. That's the word of knowledge. It's the Holy Spirit imparting in an instant, when you need it, information to you that there's no other way that you can know. And it's so that you can effectively serve God in the ministry that you have. Now, as a teacher of the word, these are the two things that I rely upon and pray for the most when I'm coming into a time of sharing the word of God. God, give to me the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom because there are things that people are going through tonight in the church service or at any time that I'm teaching the word of God that I have no idea what's going on within their life at all. And I'm dependent on you to put things in my mind, scenarios, illustrations, or words that are gonna speak to those things that are going on in the lives of your people that they need to hear that there's no other way that I could know about. Or a word of wisdom that God might give to me in the moment, in a teaching. And he does things that were unplanned, unprepared, unthought of before the teaching time comes that, that are just there in that moment that you can't not say them. They just make too much sense. It's, it's there from God. It's a word of wisdom. And I depend upon those things from God uh, as a teacher of the word. It's necessary. It's what makes God manifested in the teaching time. The third thing that he lists there in verse nine is faith. He says to another faith is given by the same spirit. A gift of faith in 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 the context of a manifestation like this is an unshakable confidence that something is a certain way or that something will turn out a certain way and it's supernatural. And, and some of you, I know that I have at times experienced that where God just puts in you an assurance that something is gonna happen a certain way and you can't explain why, there's no explanation for it, you can't make a logical train of thought to bring you to that conclusion, but there's something inside that God just places it there that you know that you know that something is going to happen a certain way. And then it does. I think of Peter and John as they came to the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. And there was a man there that sat there every day begging for alms. No doubt had been there uh, on every other day that they had gone into the temple before that. Was probably there when Jesus walked into the temple on numerous occasions. But on this specific day, it says that Peter beheld him steadfastly. And he said, look at me. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now that's going out on a limb, isn't it? I mean, what if the guy doesn't? What if he says, I'm a cripple, I can't. And he tries it and Peter's there now standing in the midst. What would give Peter the audacity to call someone out like that and to declare in faith a healing of that nature? It's a gift of faith. God, at that moment, put such a confidence in him that he knew that God was gonna back that up. Now, Peter didn't do that every time he saw a crippled person. He did it that time because God manifested himself through a gift of faith. Paul goes on then in verse nine, and he says, to another, gifts of healing. Notice that it's plural, that, there are, that the gifts of healing and the gifts of healing are to cure or to heal uh, something that needs healing. Now, why is it plural when he talks about gifts of healing? And the reason is because that there are different needs when it comes to this, this uh, arena of healing. There's body needs and bodies need healing, but there's also soul needs. There's emotional damage that, that many of us have incurred in our lives and that we do incur. And those wounds are very real. I think some of the, one of the greatest lies that has ever been told in the history of the world is the phrase, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words could never hurt me. I I, I don't believe that for one second. (laughs) Words are powerful, and they can do damage in a person's life. And there's a, there's a healing that's needed in, in the invisible place of who we are sometimes. And not only the, the soul, but also in the spirit. And so there's different needs and different types of healing that are needed. And God gives gifts of healing to people in different ways to meet those needs according to what he sees that they are. Healing also works in different ways. There are times that someone will come and ask for prayer for healing for a specific condition and it could be anything. And God will instantaneously heal that on the spot. Right in that moment, God will supernaturally heal. He can, it's no problem with him. He says, I'm the God of all flesh and nothing is too hard for me. And for God to rearrange a few crooked cells is nothing. We see it in the ministry of Jesus and we hear the testimony of it happening frequently. God heals, he can heal. But sometimes God heals, but he doesn't do it instantaneously on the spot. He allows the process of healing to take place. In the book of James, it talks about calling for the elders of the church to anoint the sick with oil, and it says that the prayer of faith will cause the sick to recover. And that isn't instantaneous. That's something that happens over time. Sometimes God uses the natural processes, but God doesn't. Sometimes God will use a surgeon or surgery. Sometimes God will use medication, but nevertheless, he's the one orchestrating those things and even the uh, obtaining of those things so that the outcome at the end of it all can be healing and so there are gifts of healing that God gives and thus we should always pray no matter what no matter what your gift is or who you are in the body of Christ when someone says there's a need or there's an issue say let me pray for you because God might use you with a gift of healing to heal that person or it might be your word that he hears to bring healing to that life in verse 10 he goes on to say to another the working of miracles Miracles are the supernatural, or a sign or wonder that violates natural law. Like we see Jesus walking on water and turning water into wine, and it's the interruption of the divine in everyday life. And there is a working of miracles that God is still interested in and still does perform even to this day. And if you live as a Christian long enough in this world, you're going to live to see miracles. Things are going to happen. That you're gonna see but here's the amazing thing about miracles the interesting dynamic is that we have a tendency in our human nature to immediately discount it as the bending of something natural we see it happen and, and we immediately look for the natural explanation or we just forget about it real quickly miracles amazingly ironically do not produce faith in a life sometimes they will for a moment often maybe an initial faith cause someone to, to get saved but miracles do not produce lasting faith within people's life but God does them and God uses them for his purposes nevertheless he goes on then to say to another prophecy now there's a distinction here to be made between prophecy in Romans 12 when he says that to, to you know the gift of prophecy and here the manifestation of prophecy The gift of prophecy is to speak on behalf of God. So there are times, no doubt, that when I'm speaking, God is giving me the gift of prophecy, like in Romans, because that's a prophetic word. I've had people come up to me after a Bible study, and they'll say, that word that you spoke today was from God. I know it wasn't you, it was God that spoke to me today. That's the gift of prophecy. The manifestation of prophecy that he's talking about here is when God will give someone a word of prophecy of something specific that is going to happen yet in the future. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came to Jesus and they showed him the glory of the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, I tell you that not one of these stones is gonna be left here upon another, but all of it will be thrown down. And then he gives to them a whole chapter of what's gonna happen. It's prophecy. In the book of Acts, we see a man by the name of Agabus and he grabs Paul, the apostle's belt, and he ties himself up with it like a prisoner. And he says, thus saith the Holy Ghost, this is what will happen to the man who owns this belt if he goes to Jerusalem. It was a manifestation of prophecy. Now, that didn't deter Paul. (laughs) If you read the story, he said, none of these things move me. I don't care what happens to me there. But nevertheless, it was a a manifestation of prophecy and that can happen in the life of a believer. God will give someone a clear picture of something that's gonna come and they speak it forward and then it happens. It's a a manifestation of prophecy. And then he says to another, he goes on and he says, the discerning of spirits. To discern means to understand and the spirit is the source of where uh, certain things come from. And so it's an ability to sense what spirit is present in a situation or what spirit is driving or motivating a situation that you're in. And that's something that God gives. I remember um, before I was even saved, I got out of my car for the first time on the campus at SUNY Purchase. And I don't know if anybody's ever been there uh, down out, right outside of White Plains. It's an art school. And when I got out of my car on that campus for the first time, I was overwhelmed by the sense of evil that hit me. It was, it was, I could almost taste it. I could feel it. It made my ears ring. And there was just something that was so evil about the place that I was that day. And I could feel it. That's a discerning of spirits. It's discerning the spirit. Now notice, I want to say this, that discerning of spirits is not the same thing as common sense. I I don't, and and some people say, well, I have the gift of common sense. I think maybe that's true. There might be a gift of common sense that just exists. (laughs) You know, some people have it and some people don't, you know, but, but sometimes people have common sense about a situation and they'll call it discernment. They'll say, well, I have discernment in this. It's that might not be, that might just be common sense. And notice also that it is not the gift of discerning of people. It's not discerning of people. It's discerning of spirits. The Bible tells us that we know no man after the flesh. From henceforth, Paul said, we know no man after the flesh. We do not judge what we see or what's taking place in someone's life based upon the outward things that we're observing within their life. We're not Free and clear to make those judgments and discern dis, dis, uh, discretions and call it discernment. Well, I have discernment over that person. Paul says people are way, 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 way too complicated for you to try to do that and to figure it out. I think of Jesus when he was in the boat, and um, and he asked the disciples if they had any bread. Or no, he didn't. He didn't ask them if they had bread. He asked them how many loaves or baskets of loaves they had gathered after the feeding of the five thousand and then the four thousand. And he was seeking to illustrate to them that that, that they didn't need to worry about that. But the disciples thought they had discernment over what Jesus was asking. And they started to go, oh my goodness, he is ticked off that we didn't bring bread. And they got it totally wrong. They assumed they thought what he was talking about, but they were completely wrong about it. In another instance, Jesus was talking to a woman at a well. And you didn't talk to a woman at a well Especially if you were a Jew and especially if you were in Samaria and especially if it was noon because the only woman that would go to the well at noon was a prostitute or a loose woman who couldn't go in the evening when the rest of the women would go. And so they came to the well and they find Jesus by himself with a woman of questionable character having a conversation in a foreign land. And it says, it even infers in John chapter four that they were suspicious as to what it was that he was doing, but it says that they didn't dare ask him. But if they were to go with their discernment, they probably would have been elbowing each other and they might've said, I discern that Jesus has a spirit of lust. We can't go with the things that we see and observe in someone's life, call it discernment and make a distinction or a character judgment on them. In the book of Acts, there was an instance where the apostle Paul was being followed by a woman. And that woman was saying, listen to this man. He's declaring the way of the most high God. Now you'd think, hey, bonus, free publicity. People are gonna hear what she's saying and they're gonna listen to my message. And she did this for several days. Listen to this man. He's giving you the way of the most high God. And the apostle Paul discerned the spirit that was behind it turned around, rebuked her, cast out the demon, and said, speak no more. Shh, God doesn't want publicity from Satan. And it says that the demon came out of her at that moment. Now listen, that was totally contrary to any human wisdom at all. You would think, Paul, how did you know that she had a demon? I mean, she's speaking, she's basically giving you a platform to preach your message. You would want this. Discernment was supernatural. Do you see it? It didn't make sense. You couldn't read the situation. It was supernatural discernment. And so discernment is a supernatural thing. Now, every one of us needs wisdom and knowledge to be able to discern people. And that's wisdom and knowledge. And God give us wisdom and knowledge that we might discern people and what it is that they're trying to sell us or do before us. But it isn't discernment. He goes on in the second half of verse 10 or there at the end of it to talk about the gift of tongues and the gift of the interpretation of tongues. And uh, I know you're holding your breath for that. But he's going to talk exclusively about tongues and the interpretation of tongues in chapter 14. He gives it a whole chapter. And so you're just going to have to wait until we get to chapter 14 to talk about tongues because otherwise it will be redundant. But notice what he says in conclusion concerning all of these gifts in verse 11. He says, but all these, all of these gifts work that one and self same spirit. So in other words, it's the same Holy Spirit that is manifested to the world through you in all of these various ways. This is how the the Holy Spirit is manifested in a supernatural way through your life. He says, dividing to every man severally or liberally as he will. Every one of us can experience and should experience all of these manifestations on a daily basis uh, uh, um, in our walk with the Lord And what it is that he's called us uh, unto. Um, And so these aren't gifts. No one can lay claim to these. You can't say when someone says, well, what's your spiritual gift? Well, my spiritual gift is uh, healing. I have the gift of healing. You can't do that. Well, my spiritual gift is the word of knowledge. God might give that to you. And it might be something because of your ministry or what you do that God does frequently with you. But you can't lay claim to saying, well, this is my gift. These aren't gifts. These are manifestations. And they can show up in any ministry and they need to show up in every ministry. If you have the gift of giving, then you need the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. And you need faith because oftentimes you're going to be pledging resources that maybe you don't know where you're going to get them yet. You read about Jonathan Edwards, you know, and and what God did through his life. If you have, uh, you know, the gift of mercy. You're going to need the gift. You're going to need the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom. You're going to need discernment. You need these gifts, all of them, no matter what your gift is. You need these manifestations within your life. And so every one of us should be walking in these things and asking God to manifest himself within our life. Another thing to, to, to take note of uh, before we close out for the night, we're not going to move forward in the text um, but, but notice what he says, that these things are given liberally to profit with all. In other words, these manifestations are not given for you and for your benefit, though we're blessed and benefited when God uses us, aren't we? But they're given for the benefit of someone else. And oftentimes, we see these things used by God according to the need. It's, a, it's frequent that someone who is an evangelist, they have the ministry of reaching the lost, that God will use the manifestations of healing or miracles or faith in their ministry because that's what's needed in their platform. They're evangelists and they're reaching the lost, those that need to know that God is real. So God will use them in that way. For me as a teacher, like I said before, God will most frequently use the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom, sometimes faith you know, uh, in, in different ways or sometimes a gift of healing the, the, the healing power that a word can have in someone's life when they hear it and it sets them free from something and a whole world of hurt is just eliminated in a moment. And, and so depending on what the need is and what the ministry is and who the individual is, God will use different variations of these to make himself known in the church. And let me say this for somebody to say that these things or these manifestations are no longer present in the church of jesus christ today has absolutely no biblical basis at all to say that to say that god in some way has set this forth in his eternal word and that then uh, along the way came to a point where he said well these things are no longer a way in which my holy spirit who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is now not gonna do within the life of a person. Now, those that say that base their saying of that on the fact that the Bible is now completed. Wherein in the day that Paul wrote this, they didn't have a New Testament. And so it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to do things in a more supernatural way because they didn't have that which is complete yet. They didn't have the Bible and the word of God. And I will grant you this, is that because the Bible is complete and the Bible is with us, it is in some instances less necessary for God to do certain things because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And because the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, And because the word of God will not return void, but it will accomplish that which God sent it forth to do. Because the word of God is what it is and is as powerful as it is, God doesn't maybe have to do some of the things here in the way that maybe he would in certain contexts. But to say that these things no longer exist is to rob the Christian church in the New Testament era of the experiencing of these things and of seeing the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the world through these things and that is an egregious error and should be avoided these things are present and as real today as at any other time in church history and furthermore and finally i'll close with this thought is that these things though their manifestations are never to be the aim and the goal of any christian in their service in other words I am not serving so that God will do these things within my life. My calling and your calling in this life is that we exercise the gift that God has given to us and that we use the platform of ministry and discover the calling that God has and then we faithfully give ourselves to the service of the Lord in that area. It's God's responsibility to show up. He gives us the gift. He gives us the platform and the power to use it. We use it and we depend upon him to do the rest. In the closing verses of Mark's gospel, Mark wrote and he said uh, these things. It's quoting Jesus. Jesus actually said it. He said, and these signs shall follow those that believe. You will take up serpents and you'll speak in my name. You'll cast out demons and, and heal and you'll speak with other kinds of tongues. Jesus said, these signs will follow those that believe. But he did not say that we should follow after these signs. There's a big difference. We follow him and we serve his purposes with our life. He shows up in that service and makes himself known to those whom we are serving. And that's the place wherein we are called. So let me ask you as we close tonight, the musicians uh, can come. What is it that God has given you to do? What is your desire? I was having a conversation with my son uh, the other day. We were driving together and, um, and I just began to talk to him about life. And, um, you know, we were talking about class warfare and, you know, the deep things of God and, 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 and all. And, um, and, and it melded into a conversation about career and the purpose of life and what God made him for. And, and, and you know, what, what are you going to do when you're older and your worldview and philosophy? We were just talking about those types of things. And what I said to him, I said this, I said, here's what you should be doing at this age. He's 12 years old. I said that part of your prayer and what you're asking God on a daily basis is that you should ask God and say, God, give me a desire towards the thing that you've called me for. Because God put you in this world for a reason. You're not a waste of life or an accident or he has to find a place for you. He already thought of it. He knows what he wants to do with your life. So ask him and say, God, give me a strong desire towards the thing that you made me for. And then when he does it, give yourself to it. And I would say the same thing to you tonight, church. What are you doing in the name of Christ tonight? You say, well, I don't know what to do. Well, then here's what you should do. Ask God to give you a strong desire towards the thing that he made you for in his kingdom. What part do I play in the grand scheme of the great commission? God, what do you wanna use me to do in this world? Why did you make me? And then as he gives you a desire and a drive towards something, then give yourself to it. Do it with all your heart. And you know what then happens? Is that not only do you get to be used by God, but you get to enjoy being used by him. Because you're driven to do it. It's a supernaturally natural thing. It's beautiful and it's glorious. And in it, we find the purpose of life. It's the landing place for all things. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this incredibly interesting portion of Scripture, wherein you promise, Lord, that if we step out, that you'll step in. And so we ask tonight, Lord, for each one of us here, that you would make this applicable in our personal uh, settings and situations. Lord, we know that you want to use each one of our lives, and we want to be fully a part of that usefulness. So please, Father, help us, Lord, to humble ourselves And to come to a place where we lay down the things that we want in this world and that we would give ourselves to what you made us for. For we know it's there, Lord, that we will find our life. So may we find our life tonight and lay it down before you. Thank you for speaking to us tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.